1: Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Yeh and Mayu Thava. Mayu is not with us today on this preamble. Seems like he's skipping a lot of these preambles lately. He's going to have to pick things up since I'm going to be going to Italy next Saturday. So uh, probably the last time you're going to hear my voice in the preamble for a while. But Mayu actually attending I think it was a two or three day real estate event focusing on development. So pretty neat stuff. I'm sure he's going to have some pretty cool updates for you guys when he's back on the preamble. On my end of things, I'm looking to slowly break into the Airbnb arbitrage model. For those experts out there, feel free to shoot me in my uh, DMs to, to give me some advice. But. Some of the things that I'm having trouble wrapping my head around on the arbitrage space, especially in Ontario, and I've, I've voiced this as well with some other people I've networked with. One of the biggest things is regulatory risk, right? Because we're seeing a lot of these cities in Ontario implementing some sort of short term rental bylaw that either bans short term rentals or makes it extraordinarily difficult to operate, such as only operating it in your primary residence for a certain amount of months in a year. Um, and with these limitations, it's always a bit nerve-wracking, especially since it seems to be the growing trend in Ontario cities. So, I mean, that's one thing I need to comfortably wrap my head around. so i've been I've been looking into some markets and seeing where it might be viable and where it runs, I guess a lesser risk of having new bylaws implemented. So that's something that's I'm working on putting together with the partner. So fingers crossed,' for making slow progress on that. Also putting together the talk tracks when speaking with landlords and real estate agents. It brings a lot of the same or, or very similar skills as wholesaling in the sense that you're selling a product or service that you're offering and you're doing a lot of cold calling, right? So you need to get their attention. And you need to get the landlord or the real estate agents, the leasing agents attention within a relatively short period of time. And you need to explain your business, what it does and how it solves their problem without rambling on and on and on. Because realistically, when you're a cold calling, people are not trying to listen to like five minutes of you explaining the business. You should be able to explain your business and how it helps the other party within like 30 or 40 seconds max. So again, like putting the top tracks together right now, almost finalizing the market, looking at AirDNA data. Now I know AirDNA is quite controversial in the arbitrage space because it's not super accurate. As I'm going through the data, like I've noticed as well, It is not incredibly accurate. For example, one thing I've been noticing is is that some Airbnbs are only operational 100 days out of the year, right? So the owner will put their property on Airbnb for 100 days, and the occupancy rate might be 90%. But that 90% occupancy rate is determined on the 100 days they have listed. So 90 out of the 100 days was booked up. When realistically, when we're looking at occupancy rate, if you're operating an Airbnb arbitrage model, you want to look at occupancy rate from all 365 days, right? Because for that person who was operating the Airbnb for only 100 days out of the year, they might have been operating it at the busy time, right? That's why their occupancy rate is 90% because the data is skewed since it's only focusing on operating during the busy time. Whereas if you look at it from a 365-day perspective, the occupancy rate would be much less than that. Anyways, it's still a relatively new space to me. So I'm doing some research, I'm networking, connecting with people, putting scripts and content together. I'm not looking to blow this thing up, to be honest with you. It's just another short-term stream of income for myself. I'm not looking to make this like a multi-million dollar business. I know uh, some people who make an absolute killing out of it but it's just the hospitality thing is great but it's uh, it's definitely a lot of work so it's not my cup of tea to, to do a full blown business out of this thing and man like <laughs> finding deals that work having the numbers work I, I find it's like much much more difficult because rents have increased so significantly and there's been a lot more supply of airbnb listings a lot of landlords and even primary homeowners are listing some of their properties or all of their property on a short-term rental websites because they found out that obviously like you have little to no control of your asset if you are doing long-term traditional rentals right so we're seeing a lot of people enter the short-term rental space anyway that's enough going on and on about airbnb on my end hopefully i'll give you guys some more concrete updates when i'm back from italy on the airbnb business and, and how that's going we're going to jump into today's podcast episode. We have Andy Tran. Andy, a very familiar name in, in real estate investing. He's the founder of Suite Edition, which is a company that specializes in adding secondary dwellings, third unit dwellings, and, and most recently garden suites as well. So Andy's definitely an expert in this place. Not only has he implemented this strategy in his own personal portfolio, but he's implemented this strategy in numerous other investors' portfolio as well. So we get into a ton of great content in today's episode, such as the cost of secondary suites, what to look for when building out secondary suites, when does it make sense to add a third suite to a property, we get into the basics of garden suites as well. And um, yeah, again, we we dive into so much different content in this episode. I'm not doing justice summarizing it here. So I guess you guys just have to tune in. It's going to be a fantastic episode. Let's get to it right now.
0: Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Andy Tran. Andy, how's everything
2: going, man? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? Doing good, Andy. Sandy from Sweet Editions. You're kind of a, an expert in secondary suites, but also now garden suites. But before we get into that, why don't you tell our audience like a little bit about yourself, how you got started, even in the investing space and how you kind of migrated into the space that you're in now?
3: Sure. Yeah. So what I'll talk about kind of the few things that are part of my background that kind of uh, lend itself to where I am right now. So I started getting into uh, real estate investing, uh, you know, way back in 2006. Back then, I didn't really know what to do. I was reading a lot of books. I was consuming a lot of content, attending meetings, but I wasn't really, you know, comfortable. And I, I got into kind of pre construction condos. And, uh, you know, that worked out just based on the market, but it wasn't really something that I had direct control over, which was, you know, always. An issue for me is I always want to have control on my investments. So, in 2010 was when I actually jumped into investing in single family properties in Hamilton. So, that's what I have done and kind of gained a lot of experience on the investment space. And that side of things, dealing with tenants, managing properties, et cetera. At the same time, I had a job working as a home inspector for a company called Carson Dunlop in Toronto and uh, learned a lot about houses. My background's in architecture. I studied architecture, but I didn't get a lot of hands on real understanding. Of how houses worked everything was theory based and everything was very conceptual so kind of the background training in architecture and design and then combine that with home inspections and then also being part of the renovation process really helped me fully understand what was involved in you know managing a property and building a property and renovating a property and during that time when i was in carson dunlop i also moved on to the education side so that really kind of got me excited about you know how can i put content in a format that people can understand and learn. When I really thought about second suite, seeing that it was a big demand in the real estate investment space. And a lot of our home inspection clients, they just needed to have the extra mortgage helper on their properties to be able to afford the property. And this is kind of in the early 2010s. And so that has really accelerated in the past 10 years, almost as a necessity. And when I saw that necessity, I said, Hey, you know what, why don't I start a design consulting company? And then, you know, blend a little bit of education in that to let people know what are the opportunities are and what they can do with their property to kind of maximize that use. And uh, that's really what I've been doing ever since, uh, really the past uh, five, six years full time. That's awesome. You come from a very strong real estate
0: background, everything from inspection, construction, or renovations, and that architectural design background that you mentioned a bit earlier. I'm just curious. So you've been in this game for a while doing secondary suites. Has there anything that you noticed that has changed from when you first began doing secondary suites, whether that be things of the building code or strictness of the city cost to doing it now in the current present environment? One obvious one would be cost, but is there anything that you've noticed that has changed significantly that's made the strategy either harder
3: or easier? All the things that you've mentioned, they've all changed, right? Basically all of the above. So Definitely costs, right? And we know that, right? With inflation, so higher labor costs, higher material costs. Although lately, you know, some of the material costs have gone down a little bit, which is a little bit of a relief. You know, second suites, basement apartments, they've been around forever. Like when my family immigrated to Canada, it was like the first place we stayed in, right? It wasn't legal, it was unsafe, it was damp, and there was probably mold on the walls and everything. And, you know, those are the kind of units that we had been accustomed to really, you know, I would say- anything prior to 2010 you know you think of a basement apartment you know you conjure up thoughts of really this dark dungeon like place maybe it's kind of like a frat house situation i've spent enough times with buddies in their college apartments you know once they move out of residence they kind of go into these kind of places and what we've noticed is that you know a lot of middle income earners are priced out of the housing market you know whether it's to own or to rent an entire house this really became a viable alternative. You know, they are still earning good income. They still want to live in good neighborhoods. They want to have access to the schools and community centers and all that sort of stuff. So they demanded kind of higher end product. And so what we've been focusing on with Sweet Editions and our clients is putting in that higher end second unit, right? Not a dark dungeon like basement, lots of natural light, nice finishes. Almost all of them have, you know, stone countertops or quartz countertops. And really making it a comfortable space so that it doesn't feel like a basement, maybe just kind of a lower level of a house. And so, of course, you know, with costs that had escalated with the quality of of workmanship, but we're also seeing the tenant quality being, you know, higher income tenants and uh, people wanting to stay longer term in these spaces. Is there a certain type of product, whether it's geographically or a certain type of
2: house like that really works? And the reason I'm asking this is when we talk about costs and costs kind of going up, I'm assuming for Burr investors, etc., which... Primarily, our audience is kind of burr investors. It probably doesn't work in a city like Timmins, as an example, right? Like, I'm assuming there's kind of minimum criteria that need to be met for the property, but also the asset value to kind of justify adding a
3: secondary suite. There's a lot of factors that play into somebody wanting to put in a second suite, right? And they are everywhere in Toronto, in Hamilton, Kitchener, Timmins, North Bay, wherever you are, you see them, whether legal or illegal, you see mm. them. And they're there for many different reasons, right? Some people just want to have that. Extra unit for a family member while some people are looking at it as an investment. Generally speaking, though, I mean, the, the higher density a city is or a town is, it's going to make more sense, right? Because that's when you have a particular structure and it's going to cost you a certain amount of money. Generally speaking, labor and materials are going to be roughly the same. Probably labor is going to be more expensive in, in Toronto compared to Timmins, but material costs are going to be the same. So you have to be able to kind of justify that cost. So this is why. All things being equal, if it's a higher density, more expensive market, then it makes a lot of sense. Now, having said that, you know if the property costs a million and a half dollars as many you know regular bungalows do in Toronto, then it might not make sense, right? This is why you know we have sweet spot cities that you know I call them kind of the you know maybe second tier cities compared to the big mega cities like Toronto, Vancouver and and Montreal maybe like Hamilton, although Hamilton is probably up there right now, Kitchener, Brantford those types of cities where it makes sense from a rental perspective that you're going to be able to cover the cost to invest in something like that from the standpoint of, you know, down payment for a property, the closing costs, renovation costs, and the holding costs for that duration that you're putting in that second unit. Gotcha. Yeah. So that makes sense. A lot of investors in our network
0: have been moving more towards second units now with asset prices. Increasing to what they are now. When you refinance a lot of these assets, the numbers are getting much, much more tighter. Have you been noticing a lot more of your clients doing triplex conversions? And if so, what is the type of property you look for that makes it an ideal triplex conversion versus a duplex conversion, or is
3: it both sort of the same sort of property? The principles are the same, right? You want to have maximum space for like three units. And uh, you know, just kind of stepping back a second, you know, we when I first invested in Hamilton in 2010. I could only rent out the entire house for, I think, $1,600. I did a rent-to-own program. And out of that $1,600, $200 went back towards the the tenant to kind of save up for their purchase if they were to do so. I mean, these days, you can't even rent a second suite for $1,600, right? So with the price and the rent increases, it just kind of keeps pushing it to the next level. And although second suites have been very profitable and a very viable solution in the past seven years, and it still is... However, you know, a lot of people are kind of looking towards the next thing, right? So the next thing we're looking at is how do you do three units and three units comes in many different flavors, right? So triplex is specifically something that is, uh, you know, typically three equal units and a lot of them are purpose-built as triplexes. So we more like to say conversions to three units, because when you say conversions to three units, it might be a triplex. It might be a duplex with one additional unit. It might be one unit with two second suites, which is what they allow in many areas in Toronto, or it might be a garden suite, right? Or uh, the official term in Ontario is additional residential unit, which is a detached structure on the same property. So we're really looking at the size of the property and what that can accommodate, especially if you're going to be doing a garden unit. You really want to pay attention to the site plan and how you can design it such that the day-to-day interaction between the occupants that are living there are going to be minimal. And then also everybody has adequate parking. Everybody has an adequate outdoor amenity space for them to use. Just to dig a little bit deeper into that, because myself and Austin, we're not by any means, like
2: we're so far from like knowledgeable on conversions, right? Do you think the triplex conversion is what's starting to work for a lot of markets? Like I know people were doing illegal, like two unit basements in Toronto for a very long time now, right? And I think Looking at the legality of it would be great. I know people are starting to do conversion to three units in Welland. And I'm assuming it's not far off from hitting Hamilton and Kitchener-Waterloo if it's not already there, right? And sorry, Maya, just specified you mean single family to three units, right? Yeah, exactly. Single family, three units. I have some mortgage clients that will go single family to duplex and then duplex to triplex, which I think is a way that you have to do it in, in Welland, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But what do you need to essentially allow you to take a single family house that's currently on the market as a single family house and convert it to a triplex? And the reason I'm asking is, when we're deal hunting, how do we go about identifying these potential type of properties?
3: Okay, so let's talk about more kind of like the traditional triplex, right? The most important thing that you have to be aware of is what's the zoning that on the property that you're looking for. You know, every city is going to have their own designations, but the most common zoning references are like R1 zone, R2 zone, R3, et cetera. So R1 is really your lowest density suburban you know, single family neighborhoods, right? And those ones are generally targeting second suites to have a second one. And then now they're targeting those neighborhoods to have the garden suite that we talked about. If you want to do kind of a traditional triplex, right? Those are usually in the higher density, possibly like the R2, R3 type of zones. They're closer to the core of the city. So, you know, you can't just take a two-story home in a R1 type neighborhood. And, And again, R1 is just a common reference for many cities. Sometimes it's different. So for example, in Hamilton, it's C zone, right? In Toronto, they call it residential detached or RS, residential semi-detached. Every city has their own references, but the most common one is the R1, R2 type reference. And so you can't just take a two-story house from R1 zone in a city, as an example, and say, I'm going to do a triplex. One unit in the basement, one unit on the main floor, one unit on the top floor. Because the zoning doesn't allow for it. The zoning usually only allows you to put in one second unit. Now, that's not to say that there's absolutely no chance, but you have to go through a bit of a process. You have to typically go through a zoning amendment to ask for special permission from the city. You know, the last thing you want to do is buy a two-story home, run your numbers with the expectation that you're going to be able to build a triplex here. All the numbers check out and you're good and you get the cash flow. You start building it and then, you know, city's going to knock on your door and neighbor's going to complain. They're going to ask you what you're doing. Oh, you know, you're putting in three units. That's illegal, right? Mm. That's kind of the number one thing to know is that you're in the right zone before you even get into kind of the structure and design of it.
0: I know this is uh kind of a could lead to broad answers, but what's the price difference between taking a single family, converting it to a duplex, an average one. Um, I don't know if there's an average versus taking a single family and turning it into three units. Is it like a drastic price difference or, or not substantial?
3: Yeah, Well, I mean, again, it's going to depend on the size, right? So if you're taking a bungalow and you're converting to three units, what are you doing? Are you subdividing the basement into two separate units? Is that kind of the goal? Yeah. I mean, in that situation, if it was legal, like it is legal in Toronto to do that, certain neighborhoods, right? Not everywhere. If you're in the R zone, you can have two second suites. There are provisions in terms of the maximum size. But really, I mean, all you're doing is what you're doing. You're putting in an extra kitchen. You're putting in an extra bathroom. Fire separation is going to be the same you still only require to have one heating system to heat all three units in that situation. So I would say that the increase in cost would probably be relatively nominal. But if let's say you had a two-story home and you were to put in a second unit in the basement, and then you want to put in a third unit on the second floor, then you're essentially, you know, potentially doubling the cost, right? Certain Mm -hmm. things are going to be fixed costs, but you're essentially, you know, really kind of look at the square footage, right? You know, depending on the size that you do, it could be anywhere between $150 per square foot if you were to take existing structure of a building and convert that to an additional unit. That's kind of Mm -hmm. the rough ballpark I would give people. So what I've been hearing from like my mortgage clients is it's
2: about like 100, 100 to 150, like usually around 150 for single family to duplex. And then it's about 250 for taking that duplex to triplex, right? So in total, 250 for taking a one unit house to three units. And then it's about 150 for one unit to two units. Is that kind of reasonable?
3: Yeah. I mean, I would probably say that that would be... pretty reasonable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess that leads me into my next question. With these
2: garden suites, and the reason I'm asking is you look at a city like Toronto, bungalow prices were getting pretty crazy. Um, I think it's great if you can take a single family house and make it into four units. And what I mean by that is you take the existing bungalow structure, if you can add two secondary dwellings into the basement unit, and if you can add a garden suite into future in the back, that to me is a huge lift in value, right? It's completely a completely different game now. Is that even possible in cities like Toronto and like these big like metropolitan cities? Can you eventually take a single family house to four units now?
3: The current bylaw right now, actually in those R zones that I mentioned in Toronto, excuse me, you can you can build two second suites plus your main unit, that's three, and you can build a garden suite, which is four, right? So you just have to make sure that you comply with all the, all the other bylaws and the building code to make sure so you can, there are certain... Single family neighborhoods in Toronto that will allow you to convert a single family home to four units as of right now. Is this primarily
2: like, because I know East York used to allow like mainway suites and stuff like that. Is this primarily, and you might not know the answer to this because it's very geographic based, but yeah. is it primarily closer to the downtown core that you're seeing this kind of?
3: Uh, yeah, not necessarily to the downtown, downtown core. I would call it the first ring suburb. So the original city of Toronto. Uh, whereas when you look at kind of the more second ring suburbs that I call the Scarboroughs the North Yorks, the Tobocokes, that type of geographic region, those are still very uh, typically are not the R zones I'm talking about. Those are the RDRS, the residential detached and residential semi. And in those areas you can do three right now. Because they're not letting you do garden suites or because. No, it's because you three. can only do one second suite, not uh, because okay. like hmm. in the, in the closer to the core Right? Yeah. like that first spring suburb I'm talking about. Uh, you know, Some of it even goes as far as like Eglinton Avenue from downtown, right? That you still right. have, or even up to Lawrence possibly, where you have these R zones where you can put two secondary suites in the unit. The Both of those secondary suites have to be less than 45% of the gross floor area, which makes it challenging sometimes. Um, mm. But if you're able to accomplish that, you can add in that fourth unit in a lot of areas, right? So The direction is kind of towards the three, four units for many, many municipalities. Well,
0: what is the ideal property to add a garden suite to? Does it have to be deep enough? Because I'm looking at my parents' house right now, their lot's not very deep, although it is wide. Is there sort of like a cookie cutter property that you look at that
3: you say, okay, this would make a good garden suite? And would you be able to elaborate on that a bit? Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the bigger, the better, basically, right? If I had to kind of give one answer. Other than that, I would say, Uh, some things to consider. If you can find a corner lot, that would be great, right? A corner lot is great for access when it comes to construction, right? You're gonna have potentially have heavy equipment coming, excavating and that sort of stuff, and it's gonna be challenging if you have to kind of go through the house. If you're not able to have that type of arrangement, then a wider property, potentially a driveway along the side where you can access the backyard. If you have a a bigger backyard, a deeper backyard, that's gonna be good for amenity space. That's gonna be good for ease of construction. So really, it comes down to having as big a backyard as possible. You know, a lot of people, when they're buying houses, they don't like a big backyard because they're thinking about maintenance, right? But from an investment standpoint, I think going forward, because with these garden suites and, um, you know, by the same token, uh, laneway houses, which were approved several years ago in Toronto, you want to have a big backyard because you want to be able to utilize that land to build additional unit, which for the most part is not subject to development fees compared to subdividing a land onto a separate title you would be in Toronto right now i mean i think starting next year it's going to be $100,000 in that neighborhood to build a single family home if you sever it with these garden suites you can build a decent sized garden suite you know something that's probably you know if you would build two stories this thing can be 1200 square feet with a basement right that's a decent sized house especially in Toronto so what would the cost to build something like that be like i know
2: development fees by the city are one thing, but even from a cost to construct, like how much would something like that generally speaking
3: cost? So if we're talking about garden suites, they're not actually, you know what? I'm not hundred percent sure. I think there is a development charge that I think you can get deferred as long as you don't sever the property. I have to look into that a little bit more, but it really depends. I mean, you could get numbers ranging between, depending on the size of the unit as well, right? Like if you have a single slab on grade type of property, it could potentially cost you you know, I, I don't want to say anything lower than 250 these days. It's just very hard. Like just looking at numbers, like even if you see it yourself, it's very hard to get under the 250, 300 range. Right. But I'm hearing between like 300 to like six, 700. Right. I mean, just mm-hmm. look at the cost of building a regular house. Right. So look at that. And that's pretty much comparable. However, from a per square footage perspective, it's going to be more expensive because there's a lot of fixed costs. That are going to be the same, whether your unit is 800 square feet or whether it's going to be 3,000 square feet, right? An electrical panel is going to cost the same. Furnace is going to be roughly the same, right? So the per square footage cost is going to be higher on a garden suite or a laneway suite compared to a regular, say, 2,000 square foot home.
0: What well, what's the per square feet costs work out to you typically?
3: About like well, if you're 300? able to like have it really tight, like let's say you're you're GCing it, right? So you are hiring somebody to excavate. You're hiring someone to pour the foundation you're hiring a framer, all the individual trades, you know, you can probably get a 800 square foot unit in there for 250, possibly. That's probably roughly 250, 300 a square foot. And I guess
2: mm-hmm. a lot of it, because you did say slab and grade or, or whatever that thing <laughs> is called, where you do, essentially like don't have a basement. I guess that definitely adds on to the cost as well if you want to add a basement. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is it in cities like Barry and Aurelia where you're allowed to now have two units within the garden suite? Is that a thing yet or no?
3: No, I I, I haven't heard of it. The only place I've heard of that is in Alberta. So I have two units in a garden suite. So it's the garden suite is one unit.
0: From an investor point of view, we always look at return on capital, right? Whenever we undergo a project, we need to be able, not always, but ideally like to burr out the money. One of the troublesome parts I think about garden suites for now in the short term, and correct me if I'm wrong, because of course, like, again, I'm not an expert in this. It's hard to determine what the appraised value is because there's no comparables. There's no sold market data. There's probably not a ton of people refinancing as well. Is that something that you would agree is, I wouldn't say necessarily a risk, but something to keep in mind when when doing these sort of projects or?
3: Absolutely. It's not for everyone. And uh, there's two types of people that would build a garden suite, right? The first type would be your homeowner. I need to build one for my aging mom or for my adult kids to live here next to me. Something like that. Something where it's just, very focused on end user. And then the second type would be the investor that may not necessarily want to leverage off and buy another property, right? Because a lot of investors come to me and say, hey, Andy, why would I spend $300,000 to build this garden suite when I can just use that $300,000 to buy another property and to put in a second suite and have an extra property, right? I don't have any answer to that. If that's what you want to do, that's great. Although other person that I think would be suitable for the garden suite would be someone that may not necessarily want to be more leveraged. They may want to just say, you know what? I have a nice piece of land here. I have a great property. I can rent it out for a good amount of money. That's going to more than cover the cost for me to finance the build of this. I'm going to build it. It's going to be a long-term hold. And this is what's going to make sense for me right now and in the future. Whereas if you're just strictly looking at acquiring the maximum number of properties, it may not make sense. But even if you are the type of person that want to maximize the number of properties, why not find a property where you have that potential at least, right? So do your main unit or basement suite, whatever it is. But maybe in the future, you're going to be able to build that garden suite. Or you're going to be able to sell it to someone that's going to be building it. And maybe at that time, there's going to be that value that's going to be added in, right? So whether you build it or not, if you're acquiring property, why not find something that is going to be suitable? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. And I think part of the problem is also just appraisals and and bank financing and kind of the requirements from them is generally to only value the one structure on a a property, which is why even when like we've looked also at deals where there's three houses on one title and it's like, well, you know, getting that thing financed is a pain in the ass, right?
3: Yeah, that's the big one. The financing and don't expect an appraisal to come higher than probably what you spent on it. In many cases, it's even going to be lower because they Mm -hmm. don't know. They don't like there's no value. It's really for that rental income.
2: Yeah, yeah, I do think a big part of the garden suites is ultimately just gonna be like an income helper, right? Like I think mm-hmm. right now the obvious like application is like you've got a retiree couple and like they've got equity in their house and HELOC. You just build something in the backyard for two hundred and fifty grand, three hundred thousand dollars. It still will generate at least like obviously this depends on each city, but if it generates like two thousand dollars a month, that's twenty four thousand on a two hundred fifty k investment, not a bad like rate of return, right? Yeah. So I do got to see the application there. And I think obviously into the future, it'll be something that a lot of investors, I think, look for as well. So I do want to get clarification then. So to have the garden suite, I know you said bigger is better. Is there like parking requirements? And what I'm thinking about here is normally these bungalows in Scarborough, as an example, just because I look at that market quite a bit, you've got 40 by 120 is kind of the average lot size, right? Some of them usually have like a lane for parking, right? Like kind of a one route access directly down the side. Would that suffice for even the two units in the basement, like garden suite? Are there some things that we need to look for when we're looking at properties that have this future capacity?
3: So if you're looking at Scarborough, I have good news for you. Like Toronto, you're not required to have any additional parking for a second suite. If you have two second suites, then you need parking for one of them. But if you have one second suite and garden suite, you're not required to have additional parking. You're only required to have the parking for the original home, right? Mm. However, you have to require, I think you have to bike parking for the garden suite. That's a lot easier. To bike parking? Bike bicycle parking. Spots. Oh, I didn't even know that. Was yeah. <laughs> yeah. Throw yeah. that on the lawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just have to show it on your drawing. Yeah, look into the city. So Hamilton actually eliminated their parking requirements as well. That's kind of the trend Although, you know, from a business standpoint, it may not necessarily make sense if you're renting it out to separate tenants, they have cars, right? So still provision for it. But, uh, you know, the the great thing is that it doesn't have to comply exactly with the bylaws require for a parking space because it's not required. So you can create something that is practical, right? Maybe a smaller space or something like that. So those are the kind of things you, you kind of want to look for. But most cities will require you still to have three parking spaces, one for each unit, sometimes four. And in many cases, they're allowed to be tandem, single file, but some cases, you know, they have to be unobstructing between the vehicles. Mm-hmm.
0: So Andy, we're talking a bit offline about, um, I, I know your company, Sweet Editions, is doing a couple of garden suites at the moment, and it's still a relatively new space, not only on your side, but on the city side as well, right? Yeah. So what are some challenges that you're noticing as you're going through some of these projects? And... What are you doing to overcome these sort of challenges?
3: There's a lot of challenges, right? And it's not just about us fully understanding all the rules and all the requirements. It's also the cities themselves, right? Because, you know, it's not like there's one entity that you deal with with the city. When I say the cities are on board, it's really their planning department, right? Along with the, uh, the, uh, the province is that they're pushing for more densification. Within the city, you know, we're dealing with the building department, the planning department, right? The planning committee department. We're dealing with uh, engineering when it comes to roads. We're dealing with uh, water and sewer and a host of other kind of departments, parking, potentially, forestry, stuff like that. And, you know, there's no communication. And so, you know, you're trying to get information. You're trying to kind of put all the pieces together. You might get misinformation. And so I would say that the only thing you can do at this stage, if you are going to be jumping into one of these projects, is communicate early. And communicate often, try to get things in writing if possible, so that at least you can kind of go back to it and potentially debate some of these things and they might give you some leeway there. But uh, really, you just kind of want to plan ahead and, uh, you know, allow for these kind of things, right? You don't want to be stuck in a situation where you're, you know, have everything lined up with a builder or a tradesperson that you can't do because of whatever reason, right? And especially when it comes to utility connections, that's going to be the big one. That's the big one for I think that's the biggest single thing when it comes to a garden suite versus a basement suite is now you're putting new connections through the ground. And there's a lot of moving parts there that you have to be aware of.
0: Have you been getting any pushback from the city on things that uh, were not super clear? So for example, uh, Savio, uh, who, who does secondary suite conversions in Windsor, he's done my secondary suite in Windsor as well. I was looking at one of his stories. And he said that a bylaw officer said, oh, oh, you need A, B, C, Sav. He knows the rules. And He's like, no, because I've done X, Y, Z instead. And they did a lot of back and forth, went up to the manager, and the manager ultimately mm-hmm. agreed with Sav. So you got to know your shit, obviously. Have you been getting pushback on certain things that uh, maybe you're not in disagreement with, but uh, wasn't super clear? Yeah, I'll
3: give you an example. So under the uh, the Ontario Plumbing Code, or the National Plumbing Code, I believe. There's a portion that says that um, if it's an ancillary building, you can go through the house, right? However, there's some room for interpretation because they're saying that if it's not accessible through a common area, then you can't have it. Some cities will allow your drain system from the garden suite to go under the existing house. Some will require it to go on the side, like on the driveway, on their lawn, and connect, do a, like a Y connection in the front. I spoke to the city, like, you know, verbally and said, that's how you want to do this? And they said that, yeah, you can actually go under the house. So our plumber did all the connections and then the plumbing inspector came and said, no, no, it has to go through the front. That's how it's read in the building code. So, you know, those kind of things, like I can argue it, I can escalate it, but I have to decide, you know, is it going to take longer? Is it going to cost me more to kind of escalate and deal with this and hold everybody up or just kind of take care of it, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of construction is going to be, you know what, let's just eat the loss, just take care of it, get it done. We learn for the next one, right? Like I encourage investors to really focus on, you know, not pushing too hard. You know, obviously there are certain things that you have to argue and push for, but it's more about kind of learning the city, focus on one particular city or town, learning, taking those lessons and moving on to the next one. That's really the goal of it. But yeah, there's definitely going to be pushback. There's gonna be miscommunication. And it's not just the city, right? There's like outside utility companies, right? So you have the, you know, whatever the hydro company is there, you have to deal with the gas company. Things like that, and then how does that interact with your tradespeople? You know, your your HVAC technician, your electrician. How does that all interact? You know, you're the conductor of this whole thing. At the end of the day, you as the owner, you're responsible. So you got to make sure everything uh, basically is congruent <laughs> as much as possible. On that topic, I think a lot of investors are often what do they say? Like penny wise and pound foolish,
2: right? Where you're kind of trying to penny pinch every single thing, and then you don't realize on the back end how much longer it's taking you to do your project holding costs and and kind of the opportunity costs and rents that you could even generate as well. Right. And I guess on that topic, like what is the general timeline for someone that's doing like a garden suite project these days?
3: Yeah. So I would put it somewhere between, let's say second suite rental. And I usually tell people like, depending on how good your contractor is, like it could be anywhere three to five months would be reasonable, right? For a basement suite for a full build, a house, right? Like not including the permit process and all that, it could potentially be six to nine months, right? So to me, something reasonable for a garden suite would be maybe five to eight months, something like that, right? And this is like you know, you're hiring someone like a builder that has all the trades people ready to go and everything scheduled properly, right? Possibly even four months in some cases. And uh, just to that point, I kind of wanted to mention about, you know, hiring contractors and not, and and kind of what you mentioned about being penny wise and pound foolish, you know, a lot of people want to save money because they want to manage everything, right? I think managing your own project is not really to save money. It's to learn. If you really want to learn the process, I think managing your project is a way to learn. It's not to save money because A, the time, right, you're going to lose out on vacancy. And then the second thing is that you're not going to be getting wholesale pricing as a general contractor would on their trades right? So a lot of times it might end up costing you more. So just kind of be aware of that for your listeners is that if they want to save money because they want to manage it, that's not necessarily the best way to save money, especially if your goal is to speed and to be able to kind of build more and, and ha- acquire a big portfolio. You almost want to find the contractor that already has the connections and build that trust and pay on time and don't nickel and dine for everything and have them on your team. That's probably the better approach. 100%. One more question just regarding. The overall business, I guess,
2: on Sweet Like, what is it that you guys offer from a service perspective? Are you guys the GCs? Are you the planners? Um, I'm just kind of curious about what it is that your company offers.
3: Yeah, so our main service is uh, design and permits, right? So we will go to the site for a client, take all the measurements, work on a design until it's satisfactory for them. We provide a lot of input because we are very investor-focused. We focus on having a functional design and making sure that the numbers work or helping them at least. And then putting together the permit documents and dealing with the city so they don't have to. We do have a number of cities that we've built a really good professional working relationship with. They do are familiar with our permit documents and drawings and things like that. So a lot of times that helps the process as well. So that's really where our role ends typically. And then we're there also as a consultant during the renovation process. So we're not just like, here's your permit, here's your drawings, buy. We're there for our clients as coaches during that renovation period, especially if you're a new investor, people find that to be very valuable. Perfect. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what we do as a service. And then of course, you know, we focus on education, training people, we do our own projects. So, you know, of course, all the stuff that we do for clients, a lot of the experiences gained from our own experience as investors and uh, renovators, developers, that sort of stuff. Awesome, Andy. So generally at this point in the podcast, we'd like to ask our guests two
2: questions. The first question is where do you see yourself five years from now? John said that from the business perspective as well. Like, I'd be curious from geographies and everything.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm pretty happy with where our company is. It's a small uh, boutique company and we get more projects sent our way than we can handle. We're happy with that. We kind of like to keep it a small team and not necessarily just grow and take on more. However, what we like to do is I would say definitely within five years is to get more people knowledgeable about this and you know, doing it for themselves. Very first thing is doing it for yourself, for your family, right? If this makes sense, you know, and then maybe, uh, you know, getting a little bit of rental income and then building your portfolio. And then we really, we'd like to be able to bring more people on in the professional space To do exactly what we're doing, being a consultant or focusing on the real estate side to acquire properties that have the potential for this type of densification uh, or be a contractor that knows everything about this so that the more of this we get out there, the more that people are going to benefit, the more housing we're going to create, right? We can't rely on the government just saying that they're going to throw a ton of money to build housing. That's not going to happen, right? We we actually have to build on a grassroots level. Makes a lot of sense from a housing perspective you know, providing housing. And it makes a lot of sense from a wealth building perspective. So we want to get the message out there to more people so that they can kind of get involved in this space at a professional level as well, as well as, you know, individually and as an investor. That's amazing. I guess the second question
2: is for newer investors in today's market, especially we could tailor this to those entering into secondary
3: suites and, and garden suites. What, what's the major risk that you see for them in, in the current market? Uh, the major risk, I mean, I think the major risk would have been more six months ago. If you ask me like this, the market was just so frothy. I was getting worried. Like people, they kept thinking it was going to go up. The major risk right now is always kind of over leveraged, right? You don't want to be over leveraged in real estate. You want to be able to handle any project that you want to take on. Um, I would say really is the risk that, uh, you know, you find a property that, you know, you wanted to do you know these types of projects right these types of additional suites and you're not able to do it that would probably be the bigger risk i myself personally i think that it's actually an opportunity right now to be able to find the properties that you perhaps were not able to find 6 months ago to be able to do these kind of things but having said that you know we don't know where we are in the macro picture there could be more pain to come there could be more downward pressure in real estate which is why i always tell people you know focus on what you have control over which is you know improving the property right
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. A lot of people are fear-mongering. That being said, if you're well-capitalized, if you're taking a risk-adjusted approach, if you are not over-leveraging yourself, as you've mentioned, you could take advantage of these opportunities that come up that weren't there the past six months, or I would even argue over the past year because of the CNIS market. Nonetheless, Andy, really appreciate you on onto this podcast. My and I definitely learned a ton. I think this is the first episode where we really dive into the nuts and bolts of conversions and garden suites. We always talk about building a power team. If anyone is looking to get into the secondary suite or triplex conversions or garden suite games, obviously I'm going to throw it out there to hit you up. And the link to your website will be down below. If anyone else wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to do so?
3: Yeah, just go to our page at uh, suiteeditions.com. We have a a contact section there. So uh, you can contact us there. You can, if you have a project, you can fill out the project form and we can definitely assist you. Uh, We offer consultations, design services. Uh, We had project management as well, although, you know, just because of bandwidth issues, we don't have that available, but we're certainly there to help with uh, consultation, design, permit stuff for second suites, garden suites, all that fun stuff.
0: Amazing. So the link to all of that will be down in the show notes below. Make sure you guys like, subscribe, do whatever you can to support this podcast because it helps us bring great guests like Andy out to the podcast. And until next time, everyone invest smarter and live better. Take care.